Let's take our Bibles, if we could, and go to chapter number uh, 3 of Colossians. Colossians chapter number 3. I'd like to have just a brief run-in conversation before we continue moving through our text this morning. And uh, you'll see what I mean by that in just a few moments. But in Colossians chapter number 3, let's read verses 5 down through verse number 15. And um, I'm sorry, verse number 13. Let's read down through verse 13 this morning. Um, I want to remind you that we do have a 9 o'clock service and an 11 o'clock service every week. And we want to thank our visitors for coming out and being with us. So as you invite people to church, it's always good to let them know about both services. Because sometimes one may not work for somebody, but the other would. And so make sure you keep that in mind as you invite people out to the services uh, throughout the weeks ahead. Um, one other thing. Trunk or treat is a go tonight, rain or shine. I was told to tell you that, so now you know. Um, Colossians 3, you're there in verse number 5. Let's read down through verse 13 together. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality and impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger and wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian and Scythian, slave free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord hath forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we ask you that you would add your blessing to the reading of the word of God this morning. We ask you that you would take what is said today that you would do the work of applying it to our hearts. Holy Spirit of God, the daunting task of proclaiming your word to your people could never be accomplished without your Holy Spirit doing the final work of turning it into our own hearts and making a transformational work within us. Lord, may we leave here loving Jesus more and more like him as we live it out this week. It's in the precious name of Jesus we ask all these things. Amen. We've been walking through this passage in Colossians 3 for several weeks now, and Colossians 3 opens up with basically a saying, don't do these things. Set your mind on things above and take off or put off these things. And literally the wording here is that you would put to death what is earthly in you. And he's calling us to put these things to death, that we ought to do uh, work against the evil that we find in our own heart. How many of you here would confess in your own heart that you know what it is to sin? Anybody ever done that before? All right. One or two of you have. All right. Some of you are shaking your head. No, I've never done that before. We need to have a conversation afterwards. All right. Um, the fact is we've all sinned. The Bible clearly says we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. You know, the frustrating thing, I think, in the struggle of the Christian life is knowing what we shouldn't do and yet we still do it. Most of the time when we cross the line, when we transgress God's law, 
It is not because we didn't know that we shouldn't do it. And as a matter of fact, we're not unaware that we've done it. Most of the time, we know we've done wrong. You ever had anybody come and get on your case for doing something? You're like, I knew I'd messed up. Why do you keep harping on me? I know I've messed up. It's very clear to me that I've sinned. We know we should not sin, and yet we continue to sin. We continue to fail. And this is that already not yet that lives inside of each one of us, that we have been born of God, we have been made new creatures, and yet we still have a sin nature that we wrestle with. And on a daily basis, we have to put to death. Paul clearly says that we must die daily. It's a daily task to put these things to death. Years ago in college, I had made some pretty grievous errors and I had walked in some sin and I was embarrassed. I was put on the spot. It came to light to the people that would try to help me. And I felt a lot of condemnation. I felt very put on the outside of everything. Um, and in that embarrassing moment, and maybe if you even heard all that was going into it, you think, man, that's not that big a deal. Why such condemnation? But it felt heavy at that moment. And someone said, hey, you need to, you need to hook up with Andy, and he's going to mentor you and kind of walk through this thing together. And, and, and actually, Andy was just a few years older than me. He's now actually in heaven. Lord took him home a year ago now, a little over a year ago. Um, good man, but he said, I'm going to walk alongside of you and try to help you. And we sat down to talk the first time, and he, he looked at me, and he said, well, what you should have done, and I'm like, yeah, you're right, I, I should have done that, you're right. And then a few minutes later, he said, now what you should have done, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, you're, I, I should have done that. And he goes, now, I'm going to tell you what you should have done. And, and about the fourth time, he said, now, what you should have done. And I remember being very exasperated with him. He goes, I, and I looked at him, and, and I was probably sending in the moment because I was probably frustrated with him. But I, I looked at him, and I said, I know what I should have done. What do I do now? And I think so often we can look at our sin and we're like, I know what I should have done. But what do I do now? How do, I, how do I get past this now? Because now I'm carrying all this grief and all of this frustration, all of this guilt. What do I do now with my sin? And this is what I want to look at this morning. Now, we, we talked about last week that we have to have our minds right and renewed in our thinking. We have to have right thinking about who God is. And all of sin, all of the devil's attacks are going to do his best to change your thinking or to move your thinking away from who God is. And he'll move your thinking about who you are and then who others are. And if he can get our thinking out of whack on any of those things, he's won the majority of the battle already. Because if we, if we have a mentality that God is a God of wrath and only a God of wrath, then we're not going to come to him when we fall. We're going to run from him. But God is merciful, and I think one of the Proverbs Psalms says, I don't have it written in my notes, but one of the Psalms says, God is merciful that he may be feared. And it is only in the fact that he is merciful that I even come to him when I am broken. But then we have the wrong view of God as saying, no, no, God, God is just loving, and he is not, we don't have to worry about it, God doesn't care how we live. That's a false view of God as well. You have to have both of these views of God in tension, as we saw last week, and they come to fruition in the cross. 
That the love of God and the wrath of God are seen the clearest at the cross. And that's where we come again and again and again. You don't get away from the cross ever in your Christian life. It is a daily place that we go and we die to ourselves. We die to our old man and we're reminded that God is a God of wrath. But his wrath was satisfied in his son Jesus at the cross. And this is where we find our hope. It is a right view of God, a right view of self, a right view of others. We must renew our thinking over and over again. But when our, when our thinking is being in the right place and we are thinking rightly, then we're called to take action. To take action against our sin, to take action in our practical daily walk, that this is a practical, how do we walk this out? And so now we sinned, what do we do now? And I want to give you four things this morning that are in your notes. If you have those notes out there, you can use those. If not, you want to jot these words down as a way to track with us so you'll know how close lunch is, all right? The first thing we want to do is confess. Secondly, we want to return quickly. Third, we want to take action. And number four, we want to put off, or put on, rather. Put on. So we want to confess Return quickly, take action, put on. And we're going to walk through these things together this morning. And uh, I, I think you're going to see this outline kind of leads us into verses 12 and 13 of our text this morning. We're not going to start there. And so bear with me as we work our way into it. I think number one, we must, when we sin, and you will sin. Make no mistake, you are going to sin. And regardless of what that sin is, the very first thing we must do is confess our sin. Now, you say, Pastor, that seems very simple. And yes, it is a simple statement. But the scripture is clear. He says he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And it's so important that when we come to confession, we understand what we're doing. That when I sin, by definition, I'm being unfaithful. I've been unfaithful to him. I've, I've, I've gone against his word. I've been unfaithful. And yet when I come to him, he is still faithful. Aren't you glad that he's faithful when we're unfaithful? And that I come to him in my unfaithfulness and he is faithful and he is just to forgive our sins. Now, how is it that God is just to forgive someone who has transgressed the law? He is just in doing so because justice was satisfied at the cross. And every time I come, I'm not going to a different gospel or another means. I'm coming to the same place I came when I sinned the first time. I'm coming to the grace of the cross. Now, I'm, I'm working here in the reality of who I am in Christ, but I'm coming to the same reality that the cross satisfied the wrath of God and he is just to forgive my sins. You see, we come to God and we have to, the word confess literally means to agree with God on. To agree with God is coming to the side of the argument that God is on and calling our sin what God calls it. And too often what we do is if we're not careful, we can whitewash our sin and we'll hear things like, uh, and, and a lot of times in, in, in the, uh, the mainstream of evangelical, we will try to soft pedal the idea of our sin. We'll use terms like, you know, you're broken. Well, here's the reality. You're broken, but you're also a, re a rebel against God. It's more than just you made a mistake. You sinned against God. I sinned against God. 
This is very important that we have that in view too, that we're not looking at our sin as just like, well, I messed up or I slipped up. No, I sinned against the holy God. That's what I've done. David, he didn't mince any words when he writes in Psalms 51 after having taken Bathsheba by force and killing her husband and, and then trying to cover it up for over a year. And then Nathan walks in and points at him and says, you are the man that has done this. David writes Psalm 51 and he said, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. He understood that it was his sin, it was his guilt, it was his fault, and it was against the holy God. And he went on the same side of the argument with God against his own sin, and he confessed his sin. We have to agree with God about where we're coming from. You see, when we have, the, and again, this goes into the wrong view of God, because God has the right to tell us what is right and wrong. He has the right to call us to right and wrong. I'm reading a, a, a very thought-provoking book right now called Rethinking Sexuality by Julia Slattery. And, and this book, she makes the statement that we must see him as Lord, not as boss. And too often we view God as our boss. And God, as long as I'm on the clock, you can tell me what to do. But when I clock out, you have nothing to say about how I live. Let me make something very clear. Everything is under his rule and we're never off the clock. He is in control and we are under his rule at all times. And we come to him and we're challenged by this. So I don't get the opportunity to say, well, I'm not on the clock, God. I, I don't want to be held to this account. No, we are called to this account. So often we romanticize our sins. And I remember one time in particular several years ago dealing with a young man. And he had his sin very much understood that he was kind of getting to the idea that it was wrong, but yet I, I'm in so in love that it can't be that wrong. And I remember after several hours of talking with him, I looked at him and I said, you need to stop romanticizing what God is judging. And too often we put it in too good of light. Here's the thing, when you go with your sin to God and you say, hey God, this is what I did this week. God is never going to go, oh, I didn't know. He knows already. He knows already. And by the way, when we have to confess our sins to one another, it shouldn't be a shock to us when people confess that they've sinned against us or done us wrong. Because here's something. The cross is told on us all. It's already told on every one of us in this room that we are sinners, that we are rebels against God, but His grace has come to us and He calls us to confess our sins. And of course, with confessing is to forsake. So confess. Let me say next. Not only must we confess our sins, which means to agree with God about. Number two, we must return quickly. We must not let the accuser condemn us and lose sight of our standing and power with God. Sin will come. When it comes, we make the mistake of finding ourselves under great condemnation. And that condemnation begins to sit heavy and then despair settles in. And too often our, our grief over sin is really about us losing face. It's kind of like, man, I thought of myself as better than that. Really? Or we'll say statements like this. I just feel like I'm letting God down. You were never holding God up. And then we'll say something like, well, I just feel so unworthy to come to God. You are. So go ahead and write that down in your journal. 
you are not, you are unworthy, you don't measure up. Now that we have that settled, let's rejoice in the fact that I don't have to measure up, he does. This is where my hope rests, is that Christ measures up. And so when I come to this, I cannot let the accuser put me in this place where I'm weighted down with my sin, but I need to acknowledge my sin, confess my sin, understanding that he forgives my sin. You understand that men may hold out unforgiveness for years, but the moment that I confess my sins to my heavenly father, it's forgiven. That moment, it's done it's forgiven. Relationship is restored. As a matter of fact, the accuser comes in in Romans 8, 31 and through 39. He talks about this. He said, who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Who's going to put something on our account? And what's his argument for why they can't? It is God that justifies. It is God who made us right in the first place. So nobody else is going to put anything on my record that would cause me to have ill standing with God. It is he that has justified me. No one can put it on my account. And so I would say to us this morning, as just a pastoral reminder, is confess your sins quickly. Return to him quickly. Don't wait and say, well, you know, I just really want to feel forgiven before I come back. Don't linger in the muddy water of your emotions, stand upon the firm foundation of God's word. The word of God says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Stand there. Stand there this morning. So I say number one, confess. Number two, return quickly. Number three, let's take action. We must act against sin by living the life that we've been given in Christ. We must take action. Now, I, I did this in the first service. I'm doing it again this one. Let me make another comment about this accuser condemning us. Pat Lencioni, he, he uh, is an organizational guru, uh, ministry, and he helps churches in a lot of different places in their organizational health. And uh, he's written several interesting books. But he made a comment the other day about how organizations get into a bad spot. And here, here's the thing he says. He said they go from either being arrogant on one side or being ashamed on the other side. And the arrogant side I thought was such an interesting parallel because it parallels what we're talking about this morning. He said the arrogant organization says they don't have any problems. That we never make any mistakes. Our organization is perfectly well-tuned, has no problems. Anybody work at a place like that? No problems at all? Okay, no hands went up. I didn't think so. The fact is, nobody's organization is perfect, right? But then he said the mistake is, on the other side of that, is that they have organizations that are constantly ashamed. That they're living with this, like, man, we have all kinds of mess-up problems. We can't get anything right. It's amazing we're still open for business, you know? And it's just this total beating down of your, yourself and your organization. But I think in the same way, the same thing runs in the life of a Christian, is that we can either be arrogant on one side, I don't have any problems, I don't have any sin to confess, I have nothing to get right, or we walk over here, this other extreme of like, man, I'm the worst person in the whole world, I can't imagine God would ever love me, and, and I, I love this statement, and we, we were sharing it, Brother Dylan and I were talking the other day, I cannot remember the pastor who said it, but basically someone came up, and they're like, can I confess this sin to God, can I confess this sin, and he's like, yes, you can confess that, you can confess that, and God will forgive me, yes, God will forgive me, and finally, he said, look, don't ever think that you're a better sinner than Jesus is a better Savior, Jesus is a better Savior than you are a sinner, he can forgive, 
But we have this spirit of condemnation and a shame. And he said that's the wrong place to live for an organization or an individual. Really where we should be is humble. And the humble person acknowledges that there are many things that need to be fixed. But we also acknowledge that we have a path forward. And the path forward for the believer is through the cross of Jesus Christ. This is the path forward we have. So now let's go to number three. We must act against sin by living the life that was given to me when I was born again. Taking action. Taking action. Nobody drifts into holiness. You're not just going to wake up one day and go, oh, man, I had a really good night's sleep. Now I'm holy. That's not how it works. Holiness is a daily decision to walk separated to God and from sin, and it is a daily action. It's not done by osmosis. It's not done by drift. It's done intentionally. And if we're going to take action on this, let me just give you a couple of things as a subcategory of this one here, of number three, of the taking action. The first one is learn from your past. Don't live there. Learn from your past. How many of you, you could take yourself back in your mind, and we probably do too often, to the place where we failed the Lord? And we can spend our time analyzing that moment. I remember as, as, a, as a high school student playing softball or basketball, and you lose by one point. And then you, you take every error or mistake you made, and you just turn it over in your head over and over again. And we do that with our sin often. We'll sit there and we'll overanalyze the moment. And we live in our past failures. We're not learning from them. So what we should do is learn from them. I know what caused me to sin there. I know what got under my skin. You know, Kind of like when you're going to go to the family get-together at Christmas and Thanksgiving, and that relative's going to be there that just ticks you off. Don't act like you don't have that relative, all right? You've got that relative, all right? And they get under your skin, and they aggravate you a little bit, all right? And you know how they, they just, they made you aggravated, they got under, look, you know that's coming, right? So as you know that's going to happen, prepare yourself ahead of time, because that's where I failed the last time. And you walk it out, understanding that, yes, I have sinned here before, and now I want to walk in a way that I'm learning from my past, not living in my past, and I want to grow from that. So I'm now prepared for that moment. You say this, don't walk this alone. Never are we called to walk the Christian life in isolation from one another. We're always called to be in family and in fellowship with one another. And you're not going to do it alone. You weren't intended to do it alone, and you won't do it well alone. And when we look at this chapter, the whole context of Colossians chapter number 3 is all about it. Remember a few weeks ago, I opened up the, the chapter in verse number 1. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek things that are above where Christ is seated. Set your mind on things that are above. And the idea is, if you have been raised, and then seek these things that are above, and it's the imperative statement of seek, and the idea is you seek. But it's not just you individually seek, but all of you seek. And remember I said, it is y'all, youans, all y'all. It's everybody together. We must understand that we're in this fight together. We're not doing it alone. Nobody here is an expert in the fight. Everybody is fighting together and we're laboring through this. All of you must do this. He calls us holy ones. He calls all of us set apart ones. He calls us beloved ones. Verse number nine, he calls the one another's. 
Do not lie one to another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. Last week we saw how that the unchastities destroy relationships and the uncharities push relationships away. We see these two things happening, and why does he say don't lie? Because you're a part of a family. You're a part of one another. Verse number 13, he mentions one another. He says, bearing with one another. What does bearing with mean? It means putting up with. Simply put up with one another. Not having to have it my way. He says in verse number 16, look what he says. Let the word of Christ dwell in you, richly teaching and admonishing one another. There is a place for us to instruct and correct one another. But we're not to be in isolation from one another. We're to be in relationship with one another. And it's only in this relationship that we find that we can run the whole of the race. We look in verse number uh, 15. Here's what he describes. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. You're a part of this body. You're in this together, and we go through this together. And that's why it's so important that we not let the enemy get a foothold. Because as you walk through this, and we read it just a minute ago, that when somebody has ought against us, what are we supposed to do? Forgive one another. Quickly lay down the transgressions of someone against us. Why? Because that person who's done you wrong, you're going to need them soon. You're going to need them, and they need you. And when we go to forgive, what are we doing? We're preaching the gospel to somebody. That's what we're doing. We're not going to get our pound of flesh. We're going to lay down our right to claim repayment. So then he tells us to take action by putting on. Now, I think it's so important to remember that the Christian life is only half done when we stop doing and I think too often what we do is we say, all right, Christians, you, got, you accepted Jesus as your, as your Savior. Now, don't do these things. Christians don't behave th- this way. And we do kind of almost a double down, grit your teeth, stop behaving a certain way. But we fail that that's only half the conversation. Not only are we not to behave in this way, he says, put on this. Walk this out and doing it intentionally, put this behavior on. The word put on, and again, we're going back to that, 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 this place here where it's this imperative, second person, plural, in the aorist tense, we talked about it a few weeks ago, that it is the now. But it's you, and not just you, but all of you, put it on now. Do this now. And when, when, when am I supposed to put on love now? When am I supposed to put on forgiveness? Now. And in the moment, and this is why confession doesn't have to be when you get alone with God somewhere, but the moment in traffic when the guy cuts you off, you can confess your sin right then. You can do it now. And this is where God wants us to do this. And to put on love. And to put on mercy. And to put on uh, forbearance that he lays out for us here. And he says, "I'm, I'm calling you to do this in the present. I remind you of the illustration. Jesus has the lame man. The men tore the roof open and they lower the lame man down in front of him. So now you have a man that is lame on his bed. He cannot walk. Somebody had to bring him to Jesus. And Jesus says to him, rise, take up your bed, go to your house. Isn't that kind of a weird thing to say to somebody who can't walk? Because, I mean, if he could do that, he would have done that. 
But he was powerless to do it. And yet here's the reality is when Jesus gives the command, he gives him the power to do what he commanded him to do. So now what he could not do before, he now can do. But he must do it by faith. Because he doesn't have any experience with an ability to do that in the past. And so when Jesus comes to us through Paul's admonition and says, be kind one another, you go, I don't know what that looks like. I've never been able to do that. And by the way, it is just as much and yea, more of a miracle that God would have you and I, wicked sinners, being kind and loving one another than it is for God to let a lame man walk. Because to let a lame man walk, he just fixed his physical body. But for us to love freely and to be kind and to have compassionate hearts, that is something he has to change us on the inside. This is a heavier work that's being done here. And he's saying, I'm giving you, so when, when the command comes, be kind, now we can rise, take up our bed, and go to our house. Because the command is given to us to do it. We were dead, we were lame, we were weak, we were unable to do it, but now the command has come, and so by faith, I'm going to be kind. Well, pastor, I don't feel very kind. And here's the thing, if you're waiting till you feel like it, you might not ever feel like it. Experience. Especially over the holidays with the in-laws. I'm just saying, all right? You can't wait for that. you got to take action and do it by faith. I'm going to be kind by faith. And what you will find is when we step out, and I can only imagine what it must have felt like to that man. Laying there on that bed who hadn't walked for so much time. And then he says, okay. And he throws a leg over the side of the bed. And there's strength to stand. And he picks his bed up and starts walking to his house. What a miracle. The same way, this is the way this works in us. Now, again, it's not because we feel that we can do this, but because we are called and whose we are. Look what he says. He says, and then, he said, put on then. And the King James says, put on therefore. Again, that, that idea is in light of this, put this on. In light of this, take this action. And he says, put on therefore what? Because of what? Look what he says in verse number 12. He said, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now he begins to describe this relationship. He said, the elect of God, the chosen ones of God. This is about our identity. And that identity does not start with us, but it starts with God. God chose me. He's placed me into his family. I don't comprehend why God chose me. I'll never understand that. If you can explain to me why the gospel came to where you live, then please do. I don't know why he did, but he did so because he's a good God, not because I was a good person. God chose me. He called me to him. Deuteronomy chapter number 7, verse 7. God says to the Israelites, he said, I chose you from among the nations. And he goes, but I didn't choose you from the nations because you were mightier or more in number than the others. He said, I chose you from the nations because of my word and because of my promises. And I don't comprehend. I'm never going to comprehend why God chose me. And especially for a kid that when I was in elementary, nobody picked me. When we played dodgeball, when we played kickball, when we played football, nobody picked me. I remember I was in seventh grade, and they threw a pass, George, and I caught the pass, and when I caught it, everybody on the field stopped. They're like, Mike caught it! And I'm like, that's more painful than if you just not said anything at all, you know? 
It's like they were completely shocked I caught the ball. I developed a little bit of coordination as I went into high school, but I didn't have any in, in elementary. I mean, and it's bad. You're standing up against the fence, and they're like, uh, we'll take that guy, that guy. I'm like, am I going to be last again? You know, the only thing worse than being last is when you are the last one, they go, you can have Mike. No, 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 you take him. That's all right. We don't mind. We'll play short of man, you know. When, when whatever team you're on, you're actually an advantage to the other team, you know. But God called us and God chose us, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. Here's what he says. He said, he called us, and he said, not only are you chosen, but you're holy, set apart. That's what the word holy means here, is the idea that I have been set apart for his service and for his glory, not for my own glory. And then he says, and you are beloved. The word agape is unconditional love. He's literally saying, God agaped you. God loved you, and he did so with an unconditional love that you have no concept of it before this moment. But God came down to where you were. He lifted you up, not because of who you are, but because of who he is. And he sets you apart from all others, and he has loved you with an everlasting love. And this is the picture that we have. And he said, so we do what we do because of who we are, rather, whose we are. Whose we are. This is where we stand. God has chosen us. God has made us holy. God has set us apart as his beloved. And again, I remind you again, in Romans chapter number 8 and verse 33, who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect? We are set apart for his use. We are agapied by his unconditional love. And all of this speaks to our standing and our identity before God. And this is the challenge that we have. Is that Satan's first attack so often is an attack on our identity. Look at, if you were to go to Matthew, we won't turn there, but in Matthew chapter 4 and 3, Jesus is facing the temptation in the wilderness. And if you remember the account in your minds, or if you've never been there, Jesus was tested before he went into his early, earthly ministry. And in that testing, Satan came to him with three temptations. And every time he tempted him, he started out with these words, if you are the Son of God. Well, there was no question that he was the son of God, but Satan starts with the temptation of his identity and he comes to you and he says, oh, I thought you were. Oh, do you really have? Are you sure? And our identity begins to be questioned. And I would challenge you this morning not to rest who you are on how well you did this week, but on what Christ did on the cross and settle your identity there. Find it there. How many of you like buttermilk? Anybody? Oh, man, I only got like two witnesses in this service. All right. I see a third back there. All right. Thank you for that hand. Appreciate that. I had a few more uh, teammates in the first service, not so much in this service. All right. I love buttermilk. I like taking a glass of buttermilk, and it's right about this time of year in just a few weeks. Susie's going to be cooking some, some uh, cornbread dressing, not that mushy bread stuff they eat up here. Cornbread dressing. All right. And she'll make some cornbread and buttermilk in that cornbread. And I, I like to take a, a piece of hot cornbread, put that in a glass of buttermilk and mix that up and eat it with a spoon. And it's just, oh my goodness, it's good stuff. I'm hungry right now thinking about it. But when I was a boy, and this is why I love buttermilk, my, my, my grandfather, uh, uh, Morris Montgomery, uh, 
Damon Morris, Morris Damon, I get the order of his names mixed up, but I called him Granddaddy Montgomery, and my dad's dad. He always called me son. Everything was son. Son. I remember I'd walk in the mornings early, he'd be standing at the window, and he'd have his blue jeans on, his house slippers, and a v-neck white t-shirt with a cup of coffee looking out the window, and I'd walk in the living room, morning, son. And it was always that, and the Lord took him home uh, about 17 years ago now, and he went home very young, but uh, great guy, great man, and just enjoyed being around him so much, but he, he'd pour himself some buttermilk and cornbread. And he would say, and I was just a little guy, he said, son, you want some cornbread, buttermilk? And if I was being honest with him, and I'd say, absolutely not. I don't want any buttermilk. That stuff tastes nasty. But I didn't want him to know that I didn't like what he liked. And I said, yeah, I'll have some buttermilk. And he'd pour me a big glass of buttermilk. And so I'd just take it, kind of hold my breath, and gulp it till it was gone. And I'd get it all down. And the payoff came because my dad liked buttermilk too. My dad come pick me up from granddaddy's house and they'd be standing there in the kitchen and granddaddy looked at dad and said, Michael, he likes buttermilk. And I'm like, yeah, I like buttermilk. I'm like dad and granddad, I like buttermilk. And I'd feel about 10 feet tall. I didn't really like buttermilk. But I liked the man who liked buttermilk. I loved the man who loved it. And I wanted so much to be conformed to who he was that I started putting on what he loved. And here's the thing. Today, I love buttermilk. I can't wait for cornbread and buttermilk to come back around. Amen? Because there is a developing of a flavor and a taste of enjoying the things that someone else loves. Because you spend time... Here's the reality... It is not within our natural man to like forgiveness. As a matter of fact, I like anger a lot more than I do mercy. It fits my natural man so much easier just to give you a piece of my mind than to give you a piece of my heart. That's what I want to do. You see, I, I've been walking with someone who loves mercy. And in his economy, mercy triumphs over judgment. And the more I'm around him, the more I begin to love kindness and mercy and grace seems so much more natural when I'm with him. And here's what he says. He says, put on. The word put on literally means to robe yourself with or to sink down into the garment. You, you know your kids, they all have done it with your, with your clothes, right? They get mom's jacket or dad's jacket and they put it on and it's hanging way down and their hands are way up and they're like, look, I'm dad. Or they get mom's shoes on and they got these high-heeled shoes, you ladies who got them on and they put those shoes on, they're trying to clomp around the house. Why? They want to be like you. And so they begin to imitate you. And in the same way, when you and I, we go to kindness and we think, man, that'll never fit. And if I try to act kind, people are going to think, oh man, look at you showing off. No just going to go ahead and put on kindness. And even though it's a little long in the sleeves and it hangs a little low, I want to put on kindness because it's the way my dad does things. And I want to walk the way he walks. You know, and I don't know about you, but my mom, she always bought our shoes two sizes too big for us anyway. 
Anybody do that? You know what I'm talking about? Because, you know, so your feet are growing so fast anyway. She's like, I'm getting them too big. And I'd say, Mom, they don't fit. And she goes, that's all right. You'll, you got it. You'll grow into it. And so let me just say to you this morning, you may put on mercy this week. And it may seem like it's just a little too big for you to wear around. You'll grow into it. You may put on kindness and it just seems like this, this garment's from a different world. It just doesn't fit me well. One day, we'll grow into it. And right now, far more than these earthly examples, when we put on kindness, we're like that lame man. All of a sudden, we become kind. But it's a miracle of God's grace that he allows sinners like us to serve him in such a way. So this way, you have the ability to go this week and take you a big old glass of mercy that you don't even really like the taste of. And before long, you're like, you know what? I really do like mercy. And, you know, it's interesting because here, here's where we find how much we like it. Verse number 13, he said, bearing with one another. Then he has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. You know why I like mercy? Because I needed mercy. He gave me mercy. He gave me kindness. He gave me these things. And he's poured them out on us freely. Let's this week go and let's grow into it a little bit, all right? Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the sufficiency of your word. Lord, I pray, Father, this morning that what is said would be a blessing to the hearts of the people. Father, I pray that more than just a blessing and an encouragement, but Father, it would be an admonition and if need be a correction to help us to redirect our course and to follow who Jesus is. Father, may we set our eyes on him. Lord, may we wake up tomorrow morning and turn our eyes to him again. That, Lord, we would be conformed to his image as we see him for who he is. Thank you for doing a work in our hearts this morning. Let's stand to our feet this morning. We'll sing together. Mm -hmm.